Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Greg Clark was born in Provo, Utah, and lives there now in the house his parents built in the foothills when he was eight years old. He has been married to Linda for 48 years, and they have three daughters and seven grandchildren. He has taught in the English department at BYU for 35 years, where he is focused on teaching rhetoric and on using rhetoric in his writing to study the ways of influence of individual experiences ranging from literature to tourism to encounters with live music. So I'd like to welcome our listeners on the podcast, and I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and Greg, welcome. I'm so glad you could join me. Thank you, Tara. I'm glad to be here. Now, a little backstory, which I didn't share with you, Greg, on how this interview came about. Uh, I have two other recorded episodes that I've been sitting on for a couple of weeks, feeling like I had to address, you know, the apocalypse, <laughs> the, what was happening in the world with COVID-19 before I felt comfortable moving forward. But COVID-19 had just turned my schedule upside down and my motivation to nil, as most of you can probably relate. And during this period, I stumbled upon a BYU speech Greg gave back in 2008, and I was just really inspired by it. I was just going to do my own episode and summarize a lot of what Greg had said in that speech, but I was still dragging my feet and just feeling overwhelmed by my lack of time and mental energy. And I'd mentioned that to my husband and he said, well, why don't you just reach out and see if Greg wants to come on the podcast? I thought that was a great idea. And now here we are. So again, Greg, thanks for helping me find the motivation <laughs> to keep rowing, to move forward uh, with this episode because I feel like it's an important topic for all of us. Thank you. That talk seems like a long time ago. <laughs> Different life. Well, I often like to start with a spiritual experience that helps boy up a testimony. But I understand that you have a rich heritage in the church. In fact, you mentioned that you are descended from members of the Nauvoo generation of the early church on all four sides. Is there a faith-promoting story you would like to share with us from your family's history? We don't have a lot of journals. We have a journal from my great-great-grandfather. His name was Charles Alfred Harper, and he was with the Brigham Young group as they crossed over the first time. Uh, it's not that inspiring uh, reading that journal. Uh, my favorite moment in the journal is is that he's describing a Sabbath meeting that they were having on the prairie, and Brother Brigham was giving a sermon, and in the distance they saw what he described, my great-great-grandfather described as some wolves running across the hills, and uh, Brother Brigham asked the brethren if they should stop the sermon and go chase the wolves. And the brethren agreed, no, no, let's just go on with the sermon. <laughs> so uh, that's not faith-promoting, but it's, it's entertaining. What, what has really affected me with those people is that they all came and they settled in Utah, in, in Salt Lake Valley. Uh, some of them uh, ended up in, in the colonies in Mexico. My grandmother was chased out of Mexico um, as a 15-year-old during the Mexican Revolution. Um, she was a Romney, uh, and the Romneys were chased out at that point. Uh, the rest of my ancestors were part of a, what I've discovered is a, a second, kind of a second Mormon migration. The grandchildren of the original pioneers didn't couldn't get land. There was no more land in Utah that because it was all owned and it was all farmed. And so that was migration to a number of places. My ancestors all went to the Snake River Valley. And these are the people I knew. Uh, my my grandparents were were raised 
as children in the Snake River Valley on farms. And I knew my great-grandparents, and I am still humbled by what they did. They never made a big deal about it, but their lives were not very easy at all. They were hard lives. Um, they It was agricultural. Um, it was long days. Um, they lived through the Great Depression. They just persevered. And so there have been times when I have wondered if I really wanted to stay with the church. And what's what I've come to recognize every time is, well, they did. Um, and do I think I'm smarter than they are? Or do they think, do I think I'm better able to make judgments about what's right and wrong and what's true and false? And, and I owe it to them to take their word for it and continue. So when my faith has been quite weak, I've been able to turn to my grandparents and my great-grandparents and the things I know about my great-great-grandparents who were the Nauvoo generation. Uh, I, the more I learn about it, the less I'm likely, I feel like I would, would have been likely to do what they did. So um, I owe it to them. And so when my faith is weak enough that it's not standing on its own, I turn to theirs, which they didn't talk about much. Uh, my grandparents didn't talk about it much. They just did the thing. Um, they just did their lives, and their lives were lives of, of considerable joy and considerable sacrifice. I haven't spent a lot of time, I confess, looking at the the family history and the stories. Um, but with this extra time that I've had on my hands, last Sunday, I spent some time in family tree and was learning about my great-great-grandfather. It was that close because my grandmother was the youngest child of the youngest wife of a man who was a polygamist, and he was quite a bit older than her. Um, but his his father and uh, his mother joined the church in England. And so I was reading about their history and just the difficulty that they they went through becoming members of the church. Their children weren't able to attend school because they were members of the church. And they didn't they didn't migrate immediately. But when they did, of course, a really difficult, a voyage, a seven-week voyage, where uh, people on the ship got measles, and so when they sh when they docked, they had to be quarantined for a couple of weeks on the ship before they could even come off. And then it it only continued to get harder as they trekked across the plains. They ended up losing their father, whose name was Daniel Clark, and Elizabeth, who is his wife, continued on with their their family and. It, it, it was just hard stuff. And so like you, I feel like I look at what my ancestors did and what they gave up for the gospel, and I recognize that I don't want to leave that behind, that legacy of endurance and grit and faith and just move forward no matter how hard it is. And so I appreciate that example, uh, Greg, because I think this is a great time for us all to look at our roots and see where we've come from. And I believe that we'll be able to draw strength from those who came before us. I want to add, just make a comment on that. I, I have friends who are first-generation members of the church, and they don't have that kind of experience of roots that you and I have. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that what they do have is a different kind of faith. Um, it may be a more an ind more independent faith, where mine is more interdependent. I I, I wonder if people who chose the church uh, and made those sacrifices, maybe they don't need the roots that we have, and because I I think they have made the people I know that I'm thinking about have made powerful contributions to my life. I, get, I think there are different kinds of faith, I guess, and different kinds of commitment and different kinds of, of handrails that we grab onto when we're weak. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad that you bring up people who who are first-generation Latter-day Saints. They may have those occasions where they feel less grounded than those who say, well, I know I'm I have pioneer ancestry on or all four <laughs> sides, but certainly those people they they had to make a very intentional choice. Whereas you and I, we we were born into this faith, so I have a great deal of respect for those who come into the church, especially as as individuals without their families, and and make a great deal of sacrifice as a result. And I do think I've often wondered, and I feel like maybe we're getting off track, but I think it's it's important to recognize that. Um, Sometimes, as members of the church, we tend to be fish in a fishbowl if we were born into the faith. And in order for us to grasp what it is that we have, sometimes we have to look at those people who found the gospel later on in life and the joy that it has brought them to see, oh, you know, they, they've they seen both sides and they can teach me something about what it means to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I appreciate you bringing that up because there's something we can all learn from every every person in the church, whether they're new uh, or fourth generation members, or they've come back from inactivity, or maybe they're on the sidelines right now, not sure if they want to be a part of us, but we need everyone. So thank you for that reminder. So we have been in this weird new normal for a couple of weeks now with COVID-19. You're in Texas at the moment, uh, helping take care of grandchildren, which is awesome. But how has COVID-19 impacted your normal routine? And how is it impacting the well-being of your family? It has blown up my normal routine. Um, We, Linda and I, have a busy life. We have things going on. Um, We have a house that we've signed a contract to remodel. We we have a yard that somehow every spring we find ourselves gone from our yard, and so we spend the rest of the summer catching up. Um, This was the year we were going to get on top of things and put things together. We're, we're trying to prepare the house for retirement, and we just didn't have this planned at all. I am very grateful that the job I have teaching at BYU is one that I wouldn't say easily, but in, a, in very accommodating ways, BYU has asked us to continue to teach our classes and our students to continue to finish out their, their semesters. But there's a great deal of flexibility in how we do that. And, and I'm doing that now in between taking care of a five-year-old and, and a seven-year-old. And, and that's not what I planned. There's also the, just the general anxiety. I have to not read the news as much as I usually do because it's so frightening. But uh, I spend maybe five, 10 minutes looking at headlines and it's scary, you know, and, and I'm realizing I may not make it out of this and Linda may not make it out of this and just about anybody may not make it out of this. And we, we, all, we all know intellectually that day to day we could die, but we are kind of seeing the death clouds on the horizon, and it's just um, very transformative. It's, it's a whole different way of life, and and I'm thinking about a whole lot of different things. So, yeah, my, my life has been blown, blown up through this, and we don't know when we're going to go home. Um, we are kind of stuck here. Um, Things change day to day in terms of what's possible and what isn't and circumstances. But So we're feeling very vulnerable right now and very exposed and no room for complacency, um, no room for for doing very much arm of flesh stuff. I'm feeling like we've talked about it. We're both in a situation where faith is about all we've got right now. 
Well, I have to say, Greg, you're you're getting a Grandpa of the Year award for sure <laughs> to be there with your grandkids. But as you said, you are in in the vulnerable age group for COVID-19. And so I'm sure for people who are older or who have uh, compromised immune systems, that this is this is a legitimately scary time. Because as you said, we we all know that we're mortal, that death could come at any time. But with COVID-19, it seems to be staring us all in the face a little bit more. And um, I think the panic and the anxiety and the stress that this is causing for a lot of people is real. It's it's merited, and this is a hard time. Back in 2008, in your speech, you likened growing fear to the symptoms of a cold. I wondered if you would mind elaborating on that analogy and how understanding fear symptoms might help us during this and other uncertain times. Well, I used that metaphor it was adapted from my experiences with depression and what I over years of work and living with depression um, and managing it what I learned was I could tell when depression was coming on I, I learned enough about the whole process that I could recognize when depression was coming on and Sometimes it was worse than other times, but just like catching a cold, I knew that it would pass. And that's kind of what I had in mind with fear. Um, If you have enough experience with fear, then you know that it passes. And, and so that's, that's what I meant by a cold. You know, you know, the trajectory of a head cold. Some are worse than others, but you know the trajectory. You know how they start. You know how they peak. You know how they wind down. And fear is the same way. It comes in waves for me. Um, so that's that's kind of what I had in mind. I've been thinking about that a lot today. I well, late since I've started talking to you uh, in the last few days, but also today. Today is a different day from the two other days in the two weeks we've been here because today our little five-year-old and seven-year-old went to their dad's house for three days. And so Linda and I and our daughter are here without the kids. And while the kids are here, they're so intense and we're so engaged that we just don't have headspace or heart space even for fear. Uh, but when it's just us, um, things are slowed down enough. We've got plenty of space for it. And it started me wondering if one of the ways out of fear and into faith is to focus on other people instead of just on ourselves. When I wrote that talk in 2008, I was thinking about how I deal with fear basically as a solo act, how I do it for myself, how I work myself through it, and how I work myself out of it. Um, that was that was 12 years ago, Um I'm a lot older and wiser now, and I'm wise enough to know that I really didn't know very much about any of what I was talking about, um, because I know even less now. <laughs> <laughs> Things are, my confidence in knowing what's going on is uh, is properly humble now, because what's going on has been instructive enough over those 12 years that I... Uh, I, th- I I appreciate the, con- the the insights that I developed in that talk. I felt like some of that was inspired. I'm beginning to think a little differently now uh, that what we do when we have fear, the best way to handle it is to lose lose ourselves in attention to other people and and care for other people. Focusing on that, we don't really have any time for fear. What we have to do is have faith. We have to have faith that that things are going to work out. We have to keep making our plans. Um, 
we 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 can either take that step forward one step at a time into the into the unknown or we can not and not is what i don't know what that is that's death like suicide i don't know uh, this this message that uh, i think when one of my notes to you i quoted lead lead kindly light uh, i don't need to see the distance seen one step enough for me that's that's a principle that i think is very true and i just try always to put my head and heart around that my little five-year-old granddaughter last night insisted that that we watch frozen 2 with her she loves the frozen movies and we saw frozen one the night before frozen 2 has this very powerful song about i'm not going to get it right but it's about it's about just do the next right thing when you're faced with impossible, daunting, frightening situations, what you do is you do the next right thing. That's maybe all you know is what the next right thing is. And that was like, that got my attention. Um, we, in times of fear, uh, like this time, I think we just need to do the, there's no point really in giving in to fear. You, you just have to do the next right thing and take care of the people around you and yourself in the present, and and things are going to happen and they're going to take care of themselves. I've been returning to a quote that um, that my one of my daughters and her husband, who does calligraphy, gave to me at one point uh, about ten years ago, and it hangs in my office. It's a statement that President Hinckley made at some point, I don't know what talk it came out of, but he inserted it into the funeral program for his wife in 2004. And most, I'm sure that you and others have heard this or read this statement. He says, it isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. Don't worry. I say that to myself every morning. It will all work out. Put your trust in God and move forward with faith and confidence in the future. The Lord will not forsake us. So that hangs on my wall, and I'm trying to keep that in mind now. Well, I have to say we're frozen people at this house. In fact, my husband loves the soundtrack, <laughs> maybe even more than my four-year-old daughter. But I think you're right in cases like this. If we look too far ahead, it just stresses us out. We don't know how long this is going to go on for. So just taking the next step, doing the next right thing, I think is certainly uh, an antidote for fear. But I wanted to back up and talk a little bit about this concept of the symptoms of fear, because when I listened to your speech, for some reason that, that just really hit home with me, that uh, sometimes, especially in the busyness that we live in, we tend to not be aware of how we're feeling. We just live and we keep living until something snaps. And there was never a true awareness of the the little fire that was brewing until it became a raging fire, if you understand my meaning. And so this concept of the symptoms of fear um, I was talking to my kids today about Enos and and how his soul hungered, and we talked about being hungry and and when we're, when our body is hungry, we know what to do. But what do we do when our spirit's hungry? And I think uh, the symptoms of fear, um, loneliness or anxiety or even confusion. I think part of the antidote to fear is just being aware of those growing things. And we have to be intentional about checking in with ourselves, um, just like you would with a cold, like, oh, I'm feeling it coming on. <laughs> so what am I going to, what am I going to do? Drink more water, take my vitamin C, et cetera. Once we, we recognize that fear, oftentimes it's just those little steps of faith that we have to take. What would you say then is the source, the primary source of fear? I can think of a, a couple, um, one, I, for me, is forgetting. It, it's forgetting that the atonement of the Savior, which 
I understand for my from the way I prefer and need to understand the atonement is as enabling and healing mostly. Um, that is that's easy to forget. I've noticed I, when I become fearful, I don't recognize that I'm fearful. I recognize that I'm I'm selfish or that I'm irritable or that that I'm discouraged or that I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. Um, it happened to me today when Linda and I and our daughter were talking through kind of the immediate future of working things out. And I was, I, I went down a, down a rabbit hole of, of catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe. And there's only catastrophe if you forget that the Savior has promised us that things will be okay. Uh, that doesn't mean bad things won't happen, but things will, as President Hinckley said, work out. So that's one thing. Uh, I think that selfishness is another, whether that's a symptom of forgetfulness or wh whatever it is, selfishness is a way that I recognize that I'm getting fearful if I'm focused on myself, because selfishness means you've got to protect yourself, take care of yourself. It's all on you. You don't have to be selfish if you believe that the Lord will be taking care of you. Then you can afford to let down your guard and reach out to others. So if I withdraw into various forms of selfishness, if I'm able to be self-aware uh, when I have those feelings, then I can recognize that, okay, that's coming out of fear. And I need to somehow remind myself of the promises of the atonement. For me, that's what Elder Bednar's phrase, tender mercies, mean. The tender mercies are the reminders that we're not in this alone. So we already talked a little bit about what some antidotes then to fear would be. I love that concept of, so the opposite of forgetting would be remembering. Remembering the atonement of Jesus Christ, the enabling power that is provided because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, and the opposite of selfishness, I don't know, what would you say? Charity. Charity. And love. You can't love if you're selfish. I've seen that close up. You have to love. If you love, then you can't be selfish. They cancel each other out. And I'll tack on, again, using your word, humility. I found that concept so powerful, again, in your 2008 speech, that when we are humble, we recognize that it's not all up to us, and then we can look to God in faith. And I fully agree with you on that, that when we forget that it's God that is lending us breath, that's keeping us upright we, we become proud, we become selfish, and we start losing our ability to draw on the power, the enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And when, when stuff starts going down like a pandemic <laughs> and we've forgotten, I think that's when fear can really take hold. I appreciate uh, that, that reminder to remember to be charitable. You already mentioned thinking of others through this period. I, it could be a, a strange tender mercy for you that you are there in Texas, while that can be challenging in many ways, but having the responsibility to care for those little ones, because it does take your mind off of of you and, and what could be. For me, I find that gratitude has also played a huge role in helping me stay grounded. What role is gratitude playing in your life right now? Gratitude is, is a therapy that I use on myself all the time. Uh, it's that old song, Count Your Blessings. The way I find into humility, which I think is fundamental, there are times when I try to figure out which one of all these principles is the foundation that the others are built on. And you can make a case for several of them being foundational and the others come out of them. Which comes first, humility or faith? It depends on the day when I ask myself that question. But humility is really fundamental. And when I uh, need 
to restore myself to humility, gratitude is the method that I use. I start thinking about the blessings I have, and I think about the times when when I've received comfort and the times when I've been enabled. That, that's my therapeutic way of getting out of hubris and, and getting to humility because I, in humility then I'm able to put my trust in the Lord. I, I think we are sort of poisoned in our in our culture, and by our culture, I mean our Western, Greco-Roman, European, American culture, we're poisoned by individualism and poisoned by, by ego. And we really need to counter the, those things. Because when we think we're the ones that everything depends on, then that's when we get very frightened. That's when fear can take advantage of us. I wrote down that sentence that you said, when I need to restore myself to humility, gratitude is the method. I love that. That really is going to be the key for a lot of us as we are moving through days where we we don't know how much longer we're going to be in this kind of apocalyptic (laughs) uh, phase of our lives. I've often felt like if I want to know how to get through hard times, you you look at people who have walked through hell and lived to tell the tale. And so I've been thinking a lot about uh, World War II and the circumstances in which people lived during that time. Specifically, I was thinking of a book um, by Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place, which you're probably familiar with as an English professor. Um, but for our listeners, I'm familiar with that book. Corey was a prisoner in a concentration camp during World War II and wrote about her experiences there. One of my favorite stories from that book is when she talks about choosing to be grateful for all things, even the fleas that infested their barracks. And her sister, Betsy, who was also a prisoner, couldn't imagine being grateful for such a thing as a flea. But Corey insisted that the Bible said that they needed to be grateful in all things, and that included the fleas. But they later discovered, I mean, talking about tender mercies, that the fleas kept the officers from coming into their barracks, which allowed them to have these spiritual meetings there without interruption or punishment. So I I think that recognizing all the things that we can be grateful for at this time, and also recognizing that COVID-19 in and of itself may be a tender mercy for all of us, a, a way to perhaps press the restart button. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this concept of you know, hard things will test us. It will expose our weaknesses. Our character will show through um, as a nation, as individuals, as Latter-day Saints. And it certainly has, as you talked about, this concept of individualism. Our ego has gotten in the way of us being united as a people and some people are really having a hard time with this concept of social distancing for the sake of the susceptible minority. So for you, how do you see this COVID-19 as a possible way for us to press the restart button, to get back to humility, to improve our condition as a people? What are your thoughts on that? I'll go at this a little bit of a long way around. Um, as you know, one of the things I've studied is jazz. Music And the reason I've studied jazz music is that jazz music seems to me to provide a demonstration of an antidote to the toxic kind of individualism. Jazz music is made by groups of highly individual musicians. In fact, if you play with a group as a jazz musician, your uh, opportunity to play really depends on the uniqueness and the authenticity of your own musical voice. Basically, a jazz ensemble is a gathering of soloists. Uh, But these soloists come together to express their own individual voices and visions of the music in a common project. And that common project 
is to make the music good. And the thing is that jazz musicians are making music within a structure, but it really is improvisational. So they have a responsibility to bring their gifts to this making process. Jazz music is one of the only uh, examples I can think of where individuals are encouraged to be individuals because individualism is really what fuels the common project. But what happens in that music is that there is a common project. Most of the time, in my experience, people are being individuals on their own agendas. And even, say, within the church, uh, we have people operating on their own agendas. We have, we have factions. Um, we have hierarchies, not not the priesthood hierarchy or the organizational hierarchy. We have other kinds of hierarchies. One of the social theorists that I use in my work describes human beings as addicted to hierarchy. The thing about COVID-19, this is coming, that was the long way around, is that it's a leveler. Everybody, famous, rich, smart, um, poor disabled, um, disadvantaged, everybody is equally vulnerable. I think we're seeing an opportunity globally, now starting to get better nationally, of, of the common project is trying to bring everybody together to take this thing on, and nobody's try, really trying to preserve their, their privilege. This seeing ourselves as truly a community of individuals who are equally vulnerable, that's something that we don't often, many of us have never recognized, many of us have never seen in action. And this is an opportunity for us to do that. I, I hope that what I'm seeing in the news, which I can only read in small doses these days, is that world leaders are, are falling into line with that. And individual people are falling into line with that. So what we're recognizing, coming back to humility, is that this is a pretty humbling experience. And out of humility, I think people can see that we're, we're all in the same boat, and we really do need to get along in the boat, and we need to keep the boat afloat. And that's the common project. I like that idea of this being a leveling experience. I, I agree that as human beings, we, we have a really hard time not comparing and not wanting to one-up each other. We see that in any, any group, whether it be a religious group or a political group, we just have a really hard time being able to see past the labels, the affiliations, and just see each other as children of God. And we struggle with, with this in the church. I think um, we're coming out of this, I think, in some ways. But for whatever reason, and maybe part of it was because of the way that we were treated in the early days of the church and how we were exterminated and, and forced to leave homes and temples. And so we, we didn't want outsiders to come in because we wanted to be protected. But I believe that in order for us as a church to grow in the way that the Lord intends us to grow, we have to get rid of the ites and the us versus them mentality. And I think that that's what you're describing here is that um, this could be a, an opportunity for us just to see each other as as another child of God, no matter what the political affiliation or whether people are members of the church or active members of the church or Christian or, but seeing each other as God sees us as equal. And so for you, what, what do you think then can be some of our takeaways and how we move forward as a church, as a nation, as a global family 
so that we can accomplish that together. Well, I think that uh, one of the most moving moments I've experienced in the past couple of weeks has been President Nelson's two-minute video, Uh, not the one where he called for the fast, but the one before that, where he just very briefly said, we're we're in this, Um, it will be okay, Uh, the Lord is with us, Uh, it's going to be difficult, but he's reassuring, and he's talking to everybody, and everybody that I've talked to uh, took that the same way. We're all on the same level with that. And he's setting a tone. It's int- I don't know what's going to happen with church experience and church activity uh, over time. We may get back to what we used to call normal. But if we do get back to that, it's not going to be the same. We're going to, I think we'll all recognize looking each other's eyes and see each other in ways we have not seen each other before. We won't see the labels and we won't see the, the stratifications and, and we won't see the stereotypes. We will see everybody as equally vulnerable and equally dependent on the Lord. And maybe that's the best way to understand a community of, of believers, a community of faith. I think that leveling is going to do something as far as uh, nationally, um, I am not a fan of current national leadership, and I feel like it's been, instead of leadership, it's just been dividing, dividing and, and fomenting resentment, and, and it really has not been nurturing of anything other than competition. But that's changing, I think, a little. I, I I don't know how it couldn't change as as leaders face what we're facing with deaths and inadequate inadequate medical facilities and uh, just the sheer unpredictability of this whole thing. And the same thing globally. Uh, everybody globally is going through the same thing, and we're all interconnected. We're all interconnected anyway, but this is this interconnection is one that's undeniable. So hopefully we'll come out of this seeing each other as partners and as brothers and sisters rather than as enemies or competitors. I hope so too. I know that on on a family level, I've got four kids, ages four to twelve, and they frequently fight like cats and dogs, especially the two youngest ones. And I've been pleading with the Lord for us to have more peace in our home because we're just we're just together now all the time. And I'm seeing it. I'm seeing that the Lord is blessing us. Um, and we're making little shifts to to try and help that along. Um, but I believe that as we plead with the Lord, in that same way to help unite this global family and this pandemic as a means to that end. I believe that He will hear our prayers because I know for myself, as you described, it's it's been hard to see the division in our nation and and the division that's happened in families. And we see that not just in politics, but uh, because of religion or uh, stances on social issues and learning to love one another in spite of our differences. Just like you said, with the jazz band, we can all be individuals and we can we can play our our unique instrument beautifully, but we have to listen to each other and be willing to give and take in order for us to make beautiful music together. Which, by the way, um, Greg was a part of a great BYU forum where some great jazz players came <laughs> and they talked about democracy and about uh, the connections between jazz and and democracy. So I will put a link uh, for that in the show notes. Now, I'm you may feel like I'm backpedaling a little bit here, but I do recognize that many of us are going to feel vulnerable and weak, which puts us, I think, in a, a better position to receive God's help. We were talking about the importance of humility. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures comes from either 1227, where it talks about how we are given weakness that we may be humble. And it's in our humility 
that those weak things are made strong through the grace of Jesus Christ. As we're talking about things that can help us move forward as a result of COVID-19, in your experience, what does drawing on the grace of Jesus Christ made available through the atonement look like in real time when our faith is being tried? It seems to me that what it looks like is is moving forward with that one, what is it, one right step to be able to take keep moving forward, I think is a manifestation of that that enabling is a manifestation of of the atonement. When we are we have no idea what's going to happen, we have no idea how we're gonna handle it. We don't even know which direction to go except for the next step. Taking that next step to me is is made possible by the grace of the atonement because it's it is an act of faith. It is an act of faith to keep moving forward into the unknown and into the face of circumstances that threaten us. Trusting in the Lord, and I, I don't think I am capable of trusting in the Lord without being enabled by the grace of the atonement. People moving forward and people continuing to try to do the best they know how, that I think that is what it looks like. I don't know if you know uh, or are familiar with Don't Miss This, if you've ever heard of that. I was listening to that today, and they were talking about how oftentimes we, when we're talking about our relationship with our spouse, that we want to be faithful. And as they had described, what would it look like to be faithful to the Savior at this time, in a time where there is a lot of uncertainty and darkness, where we, we don't know what the next day is going to look like. And for me, faithful looks like, as you said, doing the best we can uh, with what we know. And in addition to that, doing the best we can to keep the commandments. There's so many promises tied to keeping commandments and keeping covenants. And I believe that that power, that enabling power that we need so desperately, especially in times like this, is drawn upon in the best way by keeping covenants. And so there may be times now or in the future where we may scratch our heads and go, I don't see God in this. I'm not even sure if I see God. (laughs) But moving forward, being faithful, and remembering what we've seen in the past, as you had described earlier, remembering the tender mercies, and being humble enough to just like you said with your ancestors, you, you saw their sacrifice and, and what they went through for the sake of the gospel and trying to do the same as we move through the darkness. When I first read a little while ago, when I read the quote I love from President Hinckley, I ended with the statement, the Lord will not forsake us. But the quote goes on. He says, he will not forsake us if we put our trust in him, if we pray to him. If we live worthy of his blessings, he will hear our prayers. So that's why, you know, that's the other part of it that you just said. That, and that's humility, doing those things. Put our trust in him, pray to him, live worthy of his blessings. That's what humility looks like, I think. Absolutely. So it may be helpful to recap because we've, we've covered a lot. So you had mentioned initially focusing on others. Uh, We also talked about gratitude, the importance of gratitude and seeing the tender mercies, humility, all these things helping us to find faith in the midst of possible fear. Do you feel like there's anything else that you might want to mention to add to our list of how we can overcome fear and the attack of the (laughs) COVID-19? Well, it occurs to me, going back to Frozen 2, There's courage in there. That character just is scared to death and climbs out of a cave saying, I'm going to do the next right thing. I don't know that we can have courage without those other things. But what they can add up to is courage to move ahead and to do what what we understand to be the right things. So we have to take it, but maybe we have to take all those, you know, humility, gratitude, faith, all those things, put them together in action, and that looks like courage. Well, to close, 
Uh, Greg, I always ask the same question of my guests, which is why um, in the challenges that you've faced, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ? Because it's who I am. It's, it's who I come from. And the other part of it is that I've lived long enough to know that I don't know very much. And if I decide that the church is not right for me, I don't, I don't think I'm really capable of making that decision. It's just I can't see myself not rowing because of where I come from, and it's where I am. I'm in the boat. I've always been in the boat. And when I think about bailing, then I think about it, but I'm in the boat. So sometimes it's with a great deal of courage. Sometimes it's it's um, kind of passive, but but that's who I am. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate the time that we've had together and the things that you've you've taught me today. I want to end with uh, President Hinckley's quote, which was, "Don't worry, it it's all going to work out." It isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. Don't worry. This is the part that I, he says. I say that to myself, the prophet. I say that to myself every morning. He has to do it every morning. It'll all work out. Put your trust in God. And those are good words to end on. Put your trust in God. It will all work out. Well, thanks again, Greg. Appreciate your time and your your testimony shared today. And thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. The views expressed here are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor is this podcast affiliated with the church. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to receive updates on future episodes. You can submit comments or questions at stillrowing.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.